Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. We start with breaking news about President Trump's eldest daughter, Ivanka Trump, and her husband, former senior advisor to the president, Jared Kushner. The New York Times reports tonight that both Kushner and Trump have been subpoenaed by special counsel Jack Smith as part of his investigation into former President Trump's role in the January 6th attack. Now, if you watched the House January 6th committee hearings last year, you might remember that one of the signal moments was a piece of video the committee played featuring Ivanka Trump. A big question the committee was trying to answer was how much people in the White House believed the lie they were pushing, that the election had been stolen. So it mattered when the Trump, when the committee asked Trump's opinion of Attorney General Bill Barr's statement, which was made on December 1st of 2020, that there was no widespread fraud in the election. It mattered that this was how the president's daughter responded. How did that affect your perspective about the election when Attorney General Barr made that statement? It affected my perspective. Um, I respect Attorney General Barr. Um, so I accepted what he sent, was saying. The former president's daughter testified that more than a month before January 6th, she knew the election had not been stolen. Ivanka Trump is also a key witness to the events on January 6th itself. Not only did she accompany her father backstage at the rally at the Ellipse, where President Trump encouraged his followers to march to the Capitol and fight like hell, but Ivanka Trump was also with President Trump in the Oval Office and in the White House dining room during some of the key 187 minutes that day, the minutes between when the attack started and when Trump finally urged his supporters to go home. As the January 6th committee wrote in its final report, Ivanka Trump repeatedly returned to the dining room to counsel her father throughout the day. Each time Ivanka Trump thought she had made headway with her father, Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, would call to say the president still needs more persuading. It was a cycle that repeated itself over several hours that afternoon and that at one point led to Ivanka Trump going to Kushner's office next door because she needed to regroup and collect herself. So there is a lot to ask Ivanka Trump about. And it appears, also from the January 6th committee's final report, that Trump has thus far not been as transparent as she might have been. Late in the morning of January 6th, President Trump made a call to Vice President Pence. Trump tried to pressure Pence to block or delay the certification of the Electoral College results. Ivanka Trump's chief of staff testified to the committee that Ivanka told the staffer that President Trump was so upset on that phone call that President Trump called Pence the P-word. This is something you would think you would remember. But when the committee asked Ivanka Trump if there were any particular words she remembered from that call... She responded, no. As for Jared Kushner's utility at a witness, he was not personally at the White House for most of the day on January 6th, but he was there as a top Trump advisor throughout the attempts to steal the election. Kushner has thus far been decidedly dismissive about those efforts and their effects. 
Here he is describing how Trump's White House lawyers reacted to Trump's efforts to stay in power. Jared, uh, are you aware of um, instances where uh, Pat Cipollone threatened to resign? I, I kind of, uh, like I said, my interest at that time was on trying to get as many pardons done. Uh, and I know that, you know, he was always him and the team were always saying, oh, we're going to resign. We're not going to be here if this happens, if that happens. So I kind of took it up to just be whining, to be honest with you. You know, those White House lawyers always whining about threatening to resign. So it is news tonight that special counsel Jack Smith has subpoenaed both Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump for testimony before a federal grand jury. And while special counsel Smith plows ahead on January 6th, the Republicans in Congress are already hard at work on their counteroffensive. Both of the clips I just showed you tonight of Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner's depositions, both of those clips came from the House January 6th investigation's primetime hearing, which aired on June 9th. Both of them were played during the 8 p.m. hour of those hearings. But if you watched Fox News at 8 p.m. that night, you would not have heard those depositions. Instead, you would have heard this. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. You know, it tells you a lot about the priorities of our ruling class that the rest of us are getting yet another lecture about January 6th tonight from our moral inferiors, no less. An outbreak of mob violence, a forgettably minor outbreak by recent standards that took place more than a year and a half ago, but they've never stopped talking about it. The whole thing is insulting. In fact, it's deranged and we're not playing along. This is the only hour on an American news channel that will not be carrying their propaganda live. Fox News host Tucker Carlson has been literally leading the pack in trying to whitewash the events of January 6th. He produced a three-part documentary series called Patriot Purge to try to suggest it was all a false flag operation. Which is why it is such a big deal that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has now decided to give Tucker Carlson exclusive access to 44,000 hours of January 6th security camera footage. And it is not just incredible that Speaker McCarthy gave this footage to this specific Fox News host, but that he gave it to any journalist at all. Politico reports that the chief of the Capitol Police and the House Sergeant at Arms, both of them, did not know this footage was going to be given to Fox News until it was reported this week in the press. Every piece of footage the January 6th committee aired was cleared with the Capitol Police in advance to make sure they weren't compromising the security of the building by either showing where security cameras are or how security responded on that day. And now Speaker McCarthy has just handed all of the security footage over to a Fox primetime host to be foxified or whatever exactly happens over there. McCarthy certainly seems a lot less concerned about the safety and security at the Capitol these days, which is a very far cry from the way he felt on January 6th, at least according to Jared Kushner. I saw my, heard my phone ringing, turned the shower off, saw it was leader uh, McCarthy, who I had a good relationship with. Uh, he told me he was getting really ugly over at the Capitol and said, please, you know, anything you could do to help, I would appreciate it. Uh, I don't recall specific asks, just anything you could do. The, again, I got the sense that, you know, they were, they were, you know, they were scared. They meaning Ms. Leader McCarthy and people on the Hill because of the violence? He, he was scared, yes. In addition to releasing these 44,000 hours of security footage to a right-wing propaganda machine, Speaker McCarthy is now fundraising off of this decision. 
He is soliciting money by declaring that America requires truth and transparency over partisan games. Senate leader Chuck Schumer today blasted Speaker McCarthy for the move, saying it posed grave security risks for anyone who worked in the Capitol. And this afternoon, Congressman Benny Thompson, the former chair of the House January 6th committee, he gave a private presentation to House Democrats about what this all means. Joining us now is Benny Thompson, the Democratic congressman from Mississippi and former chairman of the January 6th committee. Congressman, thank you for making time to be here. We really appreciate it. And I just would love to get your first thoughts and the reaction from inside the Democratic caucus about the decision on the part of the Speaker of the House. Well, thank you very much for having me, Alex. Let me just say that the Democratic caucus in its entirety was absolutely flabbergasted that the speaker would make 44,000 hours of video available uh, to any news media without any standards, any protocols, or any notification of leader Jeffries or House administration or anybody. Uh, Democrats, just like others, heard about it in the press. So that's not how you do it. We put ourselves uh, at risk as a country, as congresspersons in the Capitol. There were a number of items that our committee put together as we viewed all of this material. Uh, we set up a separate uh, section to be viewed by individuals who have been cleared. Each one had a password to look. We worked out with the Capitol Police to make sure that we did not compromise security at any point. It's clear now, as far as we know, there's the possibility of security risk because cameras are located in a lot of areas. As you know, a lot of us had to be marshaled out of the Capitol uh, during the insurrection. Uh, all of that is on footage and, and it compromises the integrity and security of the Capitol. Uh, I think Speaker McCarthy has some explaining to do, uh, quite honestly. I mean, it's it's awfully strange behavior from a party that purports to be the party of law and order to directly compromise the safety of those who are charged with keeping everyone safe. Um, I, I, I wonder if you think that this is part of the bargain that Speaker McCarthy made to the right wing members of his caucus who were publicly asking for this footage to be released in advance of the speaker's election. Do you think this is part of the devil's bargain he made in early January? Oh, there's no question about it. I, I think we'll see some other things uh, over time also that says in order for him to get uh, the speakership, uh, he had to give up everything. And as you know, Fox News was one of the major networks uh, promoting the big lie. Uh, it's coming out in the Dominion voting case that they knew specifically that the election had not been stolen, but they kept repeating the big lie. And so now you give the footage to the big lie station so they can do the damage that they have been talking about all the time. Look, the men and women who protected us, Alex, uh, they did a yeoman's job. 
uh, over 150 uh, absolutely hurt. Some are still off work. Uh, some lost their lives. And the men and women who work in the Capitol every day deserve the best security possible. By giving this video to Fox uh, News or Network, uh, Tucker Carlson or whomever, is clearly a dereliction of duty of the speaker. And at some point, uh, I hope nothing happens, but he needs to be made accountable for what is clearly something that puts the security of the United States Capitol at risk. There's also just the, re I mean, beyond the security concerns, which are grave, there's also the idea that the Speaker of the House is willingly handing over government footage to, I don't, I, I mean, I don't even want to use the word news to describe what Fox is, but a, a propaganda machine, effectively, and what precedent that sets. I mean, are, should other outlets now request this footage too? Does is that I mean is that the way to combat? I mean, how do what what is, what is your suggestion to people in the media here? Well, well, uh, first of all, uh, we set protocols in place to look at the footage. We worked it out with the Capitol Police. We did it in a manner uh, that would not compromise security at all. My understanding is the Capitol Police didn't know that the footage had been released or made available to Fox until they read about it uh, in the press. That is not how you uh, do a security-related issue. Uh, the chief of the Capitol Police is a qualified individual. We worked with him. Uh, it was a good relationship between our committee and, and the Capitol Police. And to my knowledge, we never had a single breach of that protocol while we had the film in our custody. I have to ask you, because we do also have the breaking news tonight that special counsel Jack Smith is subpoenaing Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, uh, their testimony for his investigation. Do you have, uh, what's your reaction to that? Well, I think our special counsel is moving in the right direction. We made available to them all of the depositions uh, and other information that we had uh, gleaned over the 18 months of that investigation. Uh, they wanted to get it earlier, but we felt we had to complete our work. And in that work is significant information. Now, you understand the difference between our committee, Alex, and a, a prosecutor is their potential for criminal activity. Uh, is that what they do? Uh, we were just a legislative body trying to get uh, to the answers of what actually occurred. Now, if criminal activity uh, has gone on, then I think our special counsel uh, will get to the bottom of it. Uh, we gave him the information and, and we wanted to talk to Vice President Pence. He refused to come uh, to us. Uh, the speaker, uh, who was the leader, uh, ignored our subpoena. Uh, other members of Congress did likewise. I'd like to see uh, what happens when uh, more people get subpoenas? I think we all would. Congressman Benny Thompson, thank you as always, sir, for your time tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Now let's turn to Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman of New York. He's a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and also served as lead counsel for the first impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump. It, and never, I mean, the first, the fact that we have to stipulate that it's the first impeachment inquiry, but I digress. Congressman, 
let's just start first with where we left off with Congressman Thompson, which is the subpoenas that are coming from the special counsel's office. Are you optimistic that they're actually going to have to testify or do we think do you think we're going to get into a protracted executive privilege battle? Well, I think they've waived executive privilege if they testified uh, in the January 6th committee. So I would expect them to at least show up. Are there going to be things that they claim uh, are covered by executive privilege? It's possible, but certainly nothing that they have already spoken about can now they can now claim executive privilege. So I would expect that uh, they will show up. Um, I don't think they're going to litigate this and given just their history with the January 6th committee. And so I do think that one of the benefits, um, you know, to Ivanka Trump showing up is that if Mike Pence is going to litigate his subpoena and it's going to drag on and on and on, even if it's a losing cause, it will delay significantly. Ivanka Trump was there for and listening in to Donald Trump's conversations yeah. with Mike Pence. So the special counsel can get some of that information from other witnesses, including Ivanka Trump. Yeah, she was in the room. I mean, is in a, a, a confidant of the president in a way that few others are, if anyone else is. I, I have to ask, you know, as someone who was lead counsel for Trump's first impeachment, um, what sort of protocols are traditionally in place for the kind of material that we were ta- we are talking about vis-a-vis the security footage on January 6th, as we as we focus on January 6th more broadly here? The idea that the Speaker of the House has handed over all this footage to a Fox News host um, seems unprecedented in American history. But I also think just in terms of the access, the breach of access that has now happened, I mean, how un- how unusual is this and 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 you know what is the new normal at this point in terms of security footage and and compromising security inside the capitol building well given the security breach that occurred on january 6th well, yeah. it is even more shocking that the speaker would hand over tens of thousands of hours of surveillance tapes. Now, just think about what that means. It's not just simply that there is the actual footage. You would be able to figure out exactly where all those surveillance cameras are throughout the Capitol. Yeah. And if you, let's say, you know, we're going to promote the big lie or promote propaganda or say, for example, that what happened on January 6th was, you know, a minor incident and you wanted to help facilitate future minor incidents, you'd have a roadmap for how to avoid detection. This is this is a real security issue separate and apart from the pathetic pandering that the speaker is doing to the extreme right and in as payback for being elected speaker and of trying to pander to Tucker Carlson, who controls the sort of extreme MAGA movement. It's now. the activist wing of the Republican Party over at Fox News, it feels like. I, I mean, I, I mean, the I, extremist wing activists is I, too, well, uh, to be reasonable. active to be active in the GOP at this stage means you are probably extreme. But setting that aside for the moment, I mean, the. I think there are two parts of this that are deeply concerning. One, of course, is the security part. But the other is, like, what can they practically do with this, right? It's 44,000 hours of footage. There's a lot in there. Can they actively establish a counter-narrative, a visual counter-narrative that will go against what the January 6th committee has presented to the American public? I mean, do you think that's possible? Not in any complete way. 
But remember, what we see from these Republicans in the current investigations, you know, I'm on the Oversight Committee. I'm yeah. on the subcommittee You're on the committee on the of the weaponization. weaponization of the federal government. Right. And what they are trying to accomplish, and they did this a little bit with the impeachment investigation, is a 30-second soundbite yeah. that can be then used and spun a web to create an alternative universe. So is it possible that they could cherry pick 30 seconds of video and use that as the basis for a completely fictional narrative? Yes, of course, because it's what they do every day. So the possibilities for someone like Tucker Carlson, uh, who has no relationship with the truth, is to cherry pick various portions of it, try to weave it together to create a false narrative that can then go through the right wing ecosphere. I, I got to ask you, because you're in Congress and, you know, obviously there's a deep partisan divide here. The fact that Kevin McCarthy has not answered for any of this and is just fun. The only communication we have from him on the topic are the fundraising emails he sent out. I mean, what does this do inside Congress? He's he's breached something that has never been breached before and maybe put all of your lives at risk. I mean, what what are the repercussions inside Congress? Well, there's not a lot of trust uh, <laughs> yeah. from the Democratic caucus with the, the speaker. I, I don't think that uh, I think everyone recognizes on, on the Democratic side that he sold his soul in order to become the speaker of the House. Um, but what it demonstrates is a not just a breach of protocol, not just a brief breach of security, but a breach of the rules, ethics and practices of the House. The fact that, as Chairman Thompson said, he didn't even consult with the Capitol Police before releasing the Capitol Police's surveillance videos is remarkable. Forget about Democrats. If you want to claim, you know, you can make an argument wrong as it it may be that it's partisan. I mean, he didn't consult with the security experts about revealing security footage. It is, as Chairman Thompson said, I think a, a true dereliction of duty, not to the Democrats, but to Long the Capitol Police, to the people who work in the Capitol and broadly to the American people. And what, what can we do about it? Uh, you know, nothing in, in directly but he and the other Republicans will have to answer for it at the ballot box. And this is a party that says they back the blue. This is the behavior from a party that says it is the party of law and order. New York Congressman Dan Goldman. Daniel Goldman. <laughs> Thank you. Either way. <laughs> we'll do both. Thank you for being here. Thank Thanks you. for your time. We have a lot to get to tonight, including one of the most shocking pieces of legislation that I have heard about in a long time in a season of shocking legislation. Here's a hint. Remember those gun pins that some members of Congress were seen wearing earlier this month? Mm. Plus, Republican Ron DeSantis has done a complete 180 on Russia. We will dig into that. That's coming up next. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You can start your day off right. 
when you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. When Putin sees he can gain an inch, he's apt to take a mile. And basically, if America is not going to give him any pushback, I think he's going to continue to try to expand Russian influence. If we had a, a policy which was firm, which armed Ukraine with defensive and offensive weapons so that they could defend themselves, I think Putin would make different calculations. If you had a Reagan-esque policy of, of strength, um, I think you'd see people like Putin not want to mess with us. That was how Ron DeSantis used to talk about Russia and Ukraine. During Russia's 2014 invasion of Crimea, DeSantis was still a member of Congress sitting on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And he used his position at the time to do what most Republicans did back then, which was stake out hawkish positions against Russian aggression and blame the Obama White House for not being strong enough to be for being weak and not doing enough to arm Ukrainians in that fight. But that was then. And now Ron DeSantis is a potential contender in the Republican nomination for president. He is running in a party whose base has all but embraced Vladimir Putin and abandoned its support for Ukraine. So now when Ron DeSantis gets asked about Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, he says things like this. I don't think it's in our interest to be getting into proxy war with China getting involved uh, over things like the borderlands or, or over Crimea. The fear of kind of Russia going into NATO countries and all that and steamrolling, you know, that has not even come close to happening. DeSantis's evolution on the issue is part of a growing trend within the Republican Party. While some in the GOP have maintained support for Ukraine, there is growing momentum among conservatives who have begun openly advocating to abandon Ukraine in this fight. Congressman Matt Gates has introduced a resolution that would end all military and financial aid to Ukraine. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is now an ally of House Republican leadership, she has called for Biden's impeachment over his visit to Ukraine earlier this week. And yesterday, Donald Trump released a video for his supporters claiming that World War III has never been closer than it is right now and vowing to clean the house of all the warmongers and America last globalists in the deep state, the Pentagon, the State Department and the National Security Industrial Complex. Joining us now is Julia Yaffe, Washington correspondent and founding partner at Puck News. Julia, it's great to see you. Um, Hi, good to see you, Alex. So my question is how the evolution of the GOP on the, you, 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 the fight uh, in Ukraine, it, there was a moment and it was a short lived moment when there seemed to be some version of bipartisan support for this at the outset of all of it. And I wonder what you think the catalyst for the, the chilled enthusiasm, uh, which is putting it mildly inside the GOP, what the catalyst was for that? Was it just the, is it the length of the war? Is it the fact that Biden seems to be somewhat successful in his strategy? Is it just isolation? Isolationism is an inevitable end point of the modern day GOP. I mean, what what do you attribute it to? I think it's important to point out that I think it's still a mainstream position in the Republican Party to support Ukraine. And I was just at the Munich Security Conference, and there were a lot of Republicans, both senators and House members from the Republican side of the aisle who were there pledging their support. Some of them pretty high-ranking members pledging to, quote, die on this hill because they it because it reminded them of the struggle of World War II, that it was such a clean cut battle of good versus evil. 
As for what's happening on the far right wing of the party, I think it has several several explanations. One is the kind of as American as apple pie isolationism that runs strong in American politics from the very beginning of our republic. Part of it is Trump's embrace of Russia and the fact that Russia during his administration was seen more as a friend, in part because Russia tried to help him win the election and definitely put put their thumb on the scale during the 2016 presidential election. Uh, Putin also very ably inserts himself into our culture wars. Even on uh, yesterday, when he spoke, when he delivered his address to the Federal Assembly, he again invoked a lot of our culture war issues. Uh, and, and, And I think part of it is done to insert himself into the American culture wars, talking about how the war is being waged so that kids don't have a parent number one and a parent number two, but so that they have a mother and a father. And so that Ukrainians can't push queer values onto Christian Russia. I think that really resonates with Republicans, I think, especially on the far right. I think what's interesting is that on this part of the far right, they're very uncomfortable taking the fight to Vladimir Putin, Mm. in part because he's Mm. a white nationalist Christian leader in their eyes, but they're very comfortable taking the fight to China. And Uh, I, I wonder what the difference is. I, and I, I hear what you I mean, and there's no question that there are some establishment figures inside the GOP that are very much publicly voicing their support for Ukraine. But, you know, if you look at Republican support for providing weapons for Ukraine, for example, in May of last year, 53 percent of Republicans wanted to provide that support. January of this year, that's shrunk to 39 percent. So it seems like all, for all the reasons you outlined, this sort of semi-pro-Putin rhetoric is really having its effect on the grassroots part of the base. And I wonder, Putin's very shrewd operator. The fact that he's taking a page from the culture war playbook is is the way you you know maintain that support with the far right wing of the Republican Party. What is Zelensky's play in all of this? Because he certainly can't come out as a woke liberal um, and and isn't when and should he and he should not have to. But I mean, how do you combat that if that's what Putin's trying to do? Because they both have to care at this point a lot about American domestic politics because it could determine in some part the future of this war. Well, I think that's why you saw Zelensky coming to Congress in late December and saying, this isn't charity. And I can account for what you have sent us. And what you're sending us is helping us win this fight. And it's keeping the fight on our lands and not bringing the the war to you. I mean, it, the, this constant, uh, the constant lobbying, both public and private, that Ukrainians are doing is very important because you're right. This this uh, erosion of support in the Republican base is very concerning. Pretty much everybody quoted this poll at the Munich Security Conference in, in private, and Europeans were very worried about it, and Americans had to go out of their way to reassure our European allies, because unfortunately, as much as Europe is committed to this fight, they really still need America to lead them and to unify them, to kind of herd their cats, as it were. And um, everybody is very worried on the other side of the Atlantic. What happens if Joe Biden isn't reelected? What happens if the uh, congressional makeup changes yet again and the people on the far right gain more power or if people um, 
and the American public turn actively hostile against Ukraine. I think right now, if it's if it's an issue that's still kind of people are basically support Ukraine, but don't really pay a ton of attention to it. It shouldn't be too hard to get aid through, maybe not in the same massive quantities that the Biden administration was able to get it through in the first year. But it is going to be a lot harder. And it's definitely something that the Biden administration is conveying to their Ukrainian counterparts, that the aid packages are just not going to be the size that they were in uh, 2022. The, the domestic politics have a massive effect on what is playing out in Ukraine. And we are all watching them carefully. Julia Yaffe, my friend, it's good to see you. Thanks for your time tonight. We have lots more to come tonight, including good news for congressional Democrats, like big, historic good news. We will explain coming up. Plus, what do you get when you put a gun pin on Congressman George Santos? The answer is outrageous, and it is next. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You can live out your MasterChef dream. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. The AR-15 has been quite a central piece of Americana for over six decades. And it still would recognize its most common configuration as our country's national gun. Why is that important? Because the Second Amendment is an American is as American a right as freedom of speech, or religion, or even the press. Father, we need to send a message to the American public that weakening the Second Amendment will likely increase that other rights will be taken as well. The era 15 has been a quintessential piece of Americana. It certainly has. No notes for Alabama Congressman Barry Moore on that front. Just take a look at this map. It shows mass shootings in America dating back nearly 11 years, all involving AR-15 rifles. This isn't even a complete list, largely because there have been so many mass shootings involving AR-15s that a complete list would make it kind of difficult to actually see the map. According to the Gun National, sorry, according to the Gun Violence Archive, AR-15 rifles have been the gun of choice in about 150 shootings in the past 365 days alone. So, yes, the AR-15 rifle has become a quintessential, albeit horrific, piece of our uniquely American story. But Congressman Barry Moore's point was not that we should loosen the death grip that the AR-15 has on our culture. Congressman Moore wants to tighten the grip. Yesterday, Congressman Moore visited a gun shop in Troy, Alabama, to essentially pledge allegiance to the rifle of the United States of America. He revealed a new bill he is proposing that would make the AR-15 the national gun of America. You heard that correctly. The House of Representatives has not yet received the entire text of that bill, but who knows? It may end up winning support from certain current Republican members. 
Earlier this month, just ahead of the State of the Union, certain House Republicans began wearing assault rifle lapel pins, sort of like American flag pins that are worn as a show of patriotism. Among House Republicans proudly sporting the pin was embattled Congressman George Santos, who, by the way, actually co-sponsored this National Gun of America bill with Congressman Barry Moore. Georgia Congressman Andrew Clyde says he's the one who handed out the rifle pins to his Republican colleagues just days after a series of mass shootings in California that left more than a dozen people dead and several others critically wounded. Those mass shootings prompted another round of congressional debates about firearm restrictions. Clyde said he doled out the pins to remind people of the Second Amendment and of the Constitution and how important it is in preserving our liberties, though it is unclear if the rights to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness are prioritized in his list of liberties. Now, you should know that Congressman Clyde also makes millions of dollars selling military-style rifles, body armor, and ammunition at his gun store in Athens, Georgia. So it's possible that he has more at stake in the debate over gun reform than just the preservation of liberties. As to whether Congressman Moore's bill to make the AR-15 the national gun of America will pass a divided Congress, well, your your guess on that is as good as mine. But the real question is, does it even need to? Do we need a piece of legislation to tell us that the AR-15 is the national gun of America? Nearly every mass shooting in this country shows us that it already is. And there is almost nothing that Congress has done so far that will change that. But coming up next, there are some bright spots in this new Congress, and I am going to tell you about one of them just ahead. Democrats have at least three new reasons to smile tonight. In Kentucky, Democrat Cassie Chambers Armstrong won a special election last night for a state Senate seat with 77 percent of the vote. She outperformed President Biden, who won the district in 2020 with 65 percent of the vote. In New Hampshire, another Democrat exceeded recent party performance as well. Democrat Chuck Grassley, not to be confused with Republican Chuck Grassley, won a special election for a state House seat by 12 points against his Republican opponent. And in Virginia, this was the front page of the Richmond Times-Dispatch this morning. McClellan makes history. Democrat Jennifer McClellan won a special election last night and will become the first black woman to represent the Commonwealth of Virginia in the U.S. Congress. McClellan's historic victory underscores political change and social progress in the Old Dominion. Just four generations ago, McClellan's great-grandfather, an emancipated slave, had to take a literacy test to find and find three white people who would vouch for him so that he could register to vote. Both her grandfather and her father had to pay a poll tax in order to cast their ballots. And McClellan's own mother, now 90, did not vote until after the passing of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It is with that history behind her that McClellan has turned a new page for the state of Virginia. And by the way, she defeated her Republican opponent by a staggering margin of nearly 50 points. Joining us now is Congresswoman-elect Jennifer McClellan of Virginia's 4th Congressional District. Congresswoman-elect McClellan, congratulations on the historic victory. I'm so happy that I can say Congresswoman-elect this time. Last time, it was not yet that. That's right. Thank you. It is so great to be here, and I'm just thrilled. 
I am sure you are. And it was a trouncing of your opponent, a history, mo- a, a moment for the history books. And President Biden called you last night. And I don't want you to, you know, bre- breach any any confidences here. But is there anything you can tell us about that con- that conversation? Well, he actually called uh, before the polls closed because he was in Poland uh, and and because of the time change, wouldn't be able to call afterwards, but just wished me luck and said he was looking forward to meeting me. And uh, he promised that my kids would get to meet him because they are really looking forward to doing that. I'm sure. I'm sure. And he may tends to make good when he makes promises like that, especially when there are children involved. Um I got to ask you how you make how you're making sense of what's going on in Virginia. Right. It's a state that's changed dramatically demographically in the last several decades. It's a state that is at once sending its first black woman to Congress in the year 2023, but also very recently elected Glenn Youngkin, its governor, someone who is very much a general in the culture wars. I mean, how should voters outside of Virginia think of that state in your mind? Well, I. I think, you know, while we are often looked at as a battleground state, at the end of the day, people are looking for uh, elected officials that are going to solve problems and focus on kitchen table issues uh, and are hungry for uh, someone who's just going to look at government as a force for helping people and not a force for political theater. Do you I mean, when you when you look at the state, I mean, who do you think of as your constituents? I mean, and I would love if you could get as specific as possible, because I mean, I think depending on where you are in Virginia, it's a different group of people. I'll just call to everybody's attention. The New York Times reporting on Virginia in 2019. Once the heart of the Confederacy, Virginia is now the land of Indian grocery stores, Korean churches and Diwali festivals. The state population has boomed up by 38% since the year 1990. One in 10 people eligible to vote in the state were born outside the U.S., up from one in 28 in 1990. It is also significantly less white. You know, what are the faces that you think of when you think of your constituents in Virginia? Well, very diverse. I mean, we are, my district is about uh, 47% white, 44% black. Um, and uh, a mix of everything else. But in a lot of ways, it's a microcosm of the Commonwealth. It is uh, urban, rural, and suburban. Um, And everything from agriculture to state employees, uh, million-dollar mansions, and housing projects. And I think that voters are looking for someone who is going to speak to them and not leave any community behind. And that's what we that's what I've done for the past 18 years in the legislature. And that's what I did in this campaign. Yeah. I mean, I think in many ways they are interlinked, right? This, this demographically, this, this changing state and, uh, you know, another party that is very much isolationist nativist wants to bring us back to a time before all that demographic change. Speaking of that, of the other side of the aisle, you defeated, um, Leon Benjamin, your opponent, who is an election denier by almost 50 points. Now, Don McEachin, the congressman who preceded you in the seat, uh, defeated him in 2022 before his untimely death by 30 points. And McEachin would not, sorry, Benjamin would not concede even when he lost by 30 points. So I I think you have done us all a favor and established the threshold at which you need to beat an election denier to actually have him concede. Is 50% what everybody needs to run up in order to get election deniers to admit the truth? Well, I would like to think that election deniers would just 
the reality, but uh, if we have to run it up to 50%, then that's just what we'll do. <laughs> it's, it's a high bar, but you passed it. One last question. <laughs> I mean, when you talk about the sort of faces of leadership in Virginia, Abigail Spanberger, Jennifer Wexler, they're your fellow Democratic congresswomen from the Old Dominion, um, from the state of Virginia. Do you, do, you, do you expect to sort of have similar positions on issues as they do? They're some of the most moderate members of the Democratic caucus, and I wonder how you sort of see yourself against uh, their politics? You know, I view myself as a pragmatic uh, progressive. Um, I think at the end of the day, I'm there to solve problems and help people and do what needs to be done to leave no part of Virginia behind. I don't know where that would put me compared to them on the spectrum, but I think given the needs of my constituents, I think pragmatic progressive fits me. Congresswoman-elect Jennifer McClellan of Virginia, thank you for making the time tonight to join us after that historic victory. Some very good news for the Democratic Party and the state of Virginia. Thank you. Always a pleasure. That's the show for tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.